So this week's title, I just ran out of two pens in a row. Two pens in a row. Two pens in a row. I just pulled them from the the little jar of pulled pens them out of the jar, here, and they were both dry within one signature. Wow! I had gotten two pens almost exactly done and put them back in and not known it. It's quite a momentous occasion. I it think. is two because pens in a row. Pens are so disposable that we don't often keep one long enough to run it out, and then to run out two in a row. That's right. This feels like an omen. It does. I don't know an omen of what. I don't know what it signifies. We actually send the pens to people. Does oh, this really? surprise you or amuse you? So I <laughs> used to do live streams like every week, right? Uh-huh. And I've mostly replaced those with this podcast, though I still do some. And when a pen would run out, people would go in the comments and be like, send me the pen, send me the pen, please. I'm like, um, it's an empty <laughs> pen. They're like, I want a pen that Brandon signed something with. And so now the page that I'm signing... And it runs out, the signature gets half done, right? So Mm -hmm. I clip the empty pen to the half-signed page. And Kara, my shipping manager, sends those (laughs) out to people who send in fan mail or something saying, hey, here's a half-signed page and a a pen. It's a special half-signed one. A ballpoint pen with no ink. Now, see, what disgusts me is Mm -hmm. that you could say right now, hey, send me 50 bucks and I'll send you this half-signed book with the pen that ran out of ink. And people would. They would. And you wouldn't do that. No. Because you don't charge for them, but you could charge for them. Whereas I had a book signing last weekend and five people showed up. Well, Dan, what can I say? (laughs) You're going to be remembered for the ages. And so it doesn't matter who's showing up right now. Your books are so wonderful. You're just going to have longevity. You're all going to look ridiculous when your kids have to study me in high school. That's right. (laughs) totally not a quote from anything Uh, don't google that (laughs) all right well welcome to two pens in a row our podcast where we talk about stuff what are we going to talk about today actually actually i didn't even have this on the list should we talk about nfts because talking about charging people for things that you don't have to charge them for like my first thought when I saw NFTs exploding was, oh, I could do this. And then my second thought was, no, because someone would actually pay you for them. Yeah. Right? Now, maybe NFTs, these are non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens. Um, that, that are attached to the blockchain. I think of Ethereum is the only one that does this right now or that's big about it. If you're not familiar, it's basically a way to make something digital unique because digital items can be copied. And so you attach it to the blockchain and say, this is the one. This is the unique one, the one that is attached to this blockchain. It will keep track of who owns it and things like that. And so you can sell a JPEG that is the original, even if it's copied a billion times Mm -hmm. on the Internet. And I thought, ooh, I could sell a copy, digital copy of one of my books or something. And I thought, no. Because someone will buy it. somebody would. And they're hilarious to me because they have no inherent value. Does anything. But does anything. And yes. that's the question. And it mm-hmm. reminds me of my anthropology professor from college who told us about head bonkers. Mm. And in early human civilization, the concept of a scepter, he just called them head bonkers. But what a scepter is, is basically an ostentatious display of power. Right. I am so rich that I have this gold and I turned it into a stick for no good reason. And then everyone who sees you is like, dang, he has so much gold, he's wasting some of it as a stick. 
And then you can also bonk people on the head because you're so powerful, they can't do anything about it. And that's essentially an NFT, right? Is like, I have so much money that I can throw it away on one specific JPEG and then brag to people about how I own this JPEG. Now, on the flip side, the arguments for, and we'll leave aside the ecological arguments for now because I don't know enough about them other than to mm -hmm. know that people I trust say this is pretty bad ecologically. Yeah. But the other side is, if people are willing to pay for it and they see the value in it, what's the problem? And it's maybe not even flexing. It's more like, hey, I'm going to support this artist, which is we would consider a virtue, right? Yeah. And it's a, hey, this is speculation in a market, which maybe not a virtue, but is more than just an ostentatious display of wealth. It's someone saying, hey, I think this is going to be worth something. I'm buying it now. This reminds me of we got approached by my agent a number of years back. He said, people are starting to ask if you'll come and do presentations for them, Brandon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I never even really thought of that. Though I do know that there are some authors out there that going and doing lectures and presentations is a big part of their career and a big part of their income. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I guess. And he's like, well, how much do you want to charge? I'm like, I don't really want to do this. Let's just make it really high so no one does it, right? And mm -hmm. so I, I put down what was extravagant for me at the time, which was $25,000 a day for one of these things which, which frankly is is on par with a lot of yeah. what i've heard yep you get a lot of 40 and 50 thousands you get into the hundred thousands for politicians but authors i think the highest i've heard of is fifty thousand. and then someone came back immediately and said oh yeah totally <laughs> and i sat there and thought i don't want to do this because i don't think that i'll give a twenty five thousand dollar value lecture right i think that i'm charging what my writing time is worth at that point and what the preparation time would take and all of that, right? It wasn't $25,000 for one day, even though it was one parents, it would be more like $25,000 for like two and a half days because yeah. travel time and things like that. But I thought about and thought, yeah, that's what my writing time is worth, but I won't give a lecture worth that. And I went back and said, I think this is a wrong thing for me to have done. And I took it down and apologized and said, I just don't want to do this because I don't think I will provide the value. And hmm. my agent made the argument. He's like, the value is what they see in it, Brandon. If, yeah. if they're willing to pay for that, then, you know, why would you be bothered by charging them for that? It's what your time is actually worth. They pay for these sorts of conferences all the time. They need a speaker that's in their budget. They pay for it. And I still just said... I just don't want to do it. Not that I don't want to give the speech. I don't want to charge what giving the speech would actually cost me. Okay. okay. Is that bonkers? Is that absolutely bonkers? Well, I don't know if it's bonkers, but I do want to go on record to all of the conference organizers listening to this podcast that I will 100% accept your money See, regardless of extravagance. Here's the thing, Dan. <laughs> you would give a better speech than I would. I've seen you as a public speaker. I've seen you as a presenter. You are better at it than I am. In that realm, you can give any information that I would give better in a better <laughs> speech. I would rather watch you speak than me. So well, I don't know what, what your value would be, but that's what I'm kind of getting at is I don't think mm -hmm. I would give as good a speech. Now, bonkers or not, it's the same thing with this NFT. I could charge <laughs> for these. And maybe this will become like a real legit thing that lasts for years. But right now my worry is there are certain fans out there who are anxious about owning everything, right? Mm -hmm. If there is something I'm doing, they really want to have part of it. And I understand that because I collect Magic the Gathering. And yeah. if they release something, I don't have to have every one, but I've got to have an example 
of the thing that they've released. Yeah. And so I understand that. And I feel like right now we're just preying on those people if I release NFTs. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense because I think that that's where it is right now. Mm -hmm. And what it comes down to, I suspect, at least the way I'm looking at it, is need. Like if you actually needed that money, right. you would have no compunctions about it. Probably not. I would be like, this is a way to support myself this, as a writer. Yeah. They want to support me. When I've I was early in my career. Three children that need yeah. to eat every day for some reason. We've Multiple got Multiple times? Yeah. Like where do they get off? But if you're in a situation where you don't need that money, then mm -hmm. you're really just taking it from people who do. And yes, you're providing them something that they want, but I don't know. Early in my career, someone just sent me a donation. It's like, I like what you're doing. I can't spend more on the books. I have them all. Here's 200 bucks. Mm -hmm. And that actually was like money I needed at that point in my yeah. life. And I have always been hugely grateful to that individual who might be listening and knows who they are because they had a very stable career and a well-paying job and just sent me some money. And so early in my career, I had a tip jar on my website. I've taken it down. I took it down years ago because, again, there's this sort of sense that there's a difference, I suppose, in where I am in my career. It's yeah. prevented me from putting up a Patreon, though Adam has been kind of poking me and saying, hey, I think we could actually offer something that fans would really love in a Patreon if we did one. So I won't rule that out entirely, but I yeah. don't have one. But I know lots of authors who do, and it's not like I begrudge mm -hmm. them having them. Now, see, I do have a Patreon, mm -hmm. and I have a pointless level on it. I've got three normal levels. There's right. the tip jar level. There's the two more levels of I'm going to provide value yeah. to you. And then the $50 level is just I want to give Dan money because there's no harm in putting that up. If somebody genuinely wants to throw $50 at me, there you go. You now have the means to do so. There's no one subscribed at that level. But on the other hand, with Writing Excuses, which is the other podcast that Brandon yeah. and I do, along with Mary Robinette Kowal and Howard Taylor. And various are, other excellent And various other hosts. wonderful yes. guests who come in. We have a Patreon for that. And I put up a, I want to give you extra money level. And we got a bunch of subscribers. And that's what we use to fund some of the scholarships that we do for our writing yeah. conference. So... Let's actually go to the list. Oh, okay. Let's talk about things we actually plan to talk about <laughs> because we know basically nothing about NFTs. And so first I have to share just my favorite oh, story about NFTs mm -hmm. is I was watching on Twitter one of the Winklevoss twins. Who? You don't know the Winklevoss twins? Do they run the the big NFT website or they are heavily involved in it. They're okay. the people from Harvard that were acquaintances of Mark Zuckerberg okay. during the creation of Facebook and they sued him because I know who they are now. Okay. Yeah. That's just an awesome name. Man. Yeah. Then to be twins. Well, and in the movie Social Network that he refers to them as the Winklevi, which I think is very clever. <laughs> but anyway, so they're heavily involved with the NFT stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of them was arguing and arguing about how this was so cool and this was so incredible. And this guy on Twitter was like, Yeah, but it's just a JPEG. And he's like, yeah, but it's a JPEG that you own and nobody else owns. He's like, well, there's no value in that. And the Winklevoss guy said, I don't understand why you don't think it would be great to own something that nobody else owns. And then the guy on Twitter said, I'm starting to understand how you let a nerd with no social skills steal Facebook from you. 
Nice job, anonymous which, nerd, or probably not anonymous, funny. but yeah. unnamed nerd on Twitter. I find it fascinating. I'm really interested in all of it, but it's weird. It also, like, maybe we should sometime talk about, not today because we're not prepared, but sometime talk about big data, machine learning, Ooh. and writing novels. I would really love <laughs> to get one of these machine learning sites and pump a few of our novels in and have them write a chapter of a Dan Wells book and a Brandon Sanderson that book. That would be really fascinating. And then pump both of our books in and have it write a co-authored book between <laughs> us and read those on the podcast. Oh, man. I would be fascinated to see that, though I do have to say that one of my least favorite Twitter memes mm-hmm. is the fake machine learning story. Oh, really? They used to be really common. I haven't seen one in about a year, but people used to be like, I put every episode of this TV show into the machine learning, and this is the first page of the script that it gave me. And it's clearly just them right. writing a parody, making jokes they think are funny. Yeah. And it's so disappointing to me every time that it's not actually a machine. Yeah. There is a Robo Rosewater. Mark Rosewater is the lead designer of Magic mm-hmm. the Gathering, my nerd obsession. And it's a machine learning that takes all cards and tries to make its own and pops a new one. I don't know if it's still going. It was going for years. I used to follow yeah. that account mm-hmm. on Twitter. And it was amusing because the things that it would do, which were totally non nonsensical, but you could see how they might be sensical in an alternate dimension. <laughs> you know, when I met Mark Rosewater, mm-hmm. he's so much shorter than I expected him to be he is a short firebrand yeah yes yes i do have in my collection one of their playtest cards that he signed so i have one right i don't need more than one but i've got one which is is pretty cool (laughs) that's awesome Mm -hmm. so the real topic for today the real topic for today food snobbery food snobbery i love this brandon and i have such very different opinions about what food is good and what food is not good Mm -hmm. and i expect that this will be a Good way of talking about that. See, I like Mexican food, and Dan likes Mexican food. (laughs) There's a difference between Mexican food and food from a Mexican restaurant. Yes. And Dan has taken me several times to um, Mexican, how would you say it, food from Mexico restaurants? Yeah, well, and we have to be upfront about this, because there's Mm -hmm. actually a lot of cultural stuff going on here. Right. It's Um, not like Tex-Mex is not a culturally significant food to a lot of people. I used to live in Mexico. I lived there for several years and have very specific opinions about the kinds of food that I like. And this is where it becomes snobbery rather than me being a connoisseur. Mm. Right? Yeah. Well, Um, I want to talk about that difference because I've got a definition, but I'm curious what your definition would be. Well, the way that I'm using this right now is me not liking a certain kind of food doesn't make it a bad food. Right. Okay. Yep. That's definitely part of the definition, right? We can get to that to basically anything. I think we'll talk about that a lot on various episodes. The idea between I don't like it and it's bad, that line. Yeah. I think we'll come back to. So like a connoisseur of Mexican food, and I would not claim to be one, you know, would have opinions about the high end of the scale, the Mm -hmm. top one or 2%. What is the best? What is your favorite? That sort of thing. Whereas my opinion is basically just, I hate Costa Vida. (laughs) Oh man, I love Costa Vida. (laughs) This is in Utah. It's kind of a Chipotle type restaurant, but... And the thing is, they're not terrible. They're very good 
we will understand that when yeah. we say, because we're going to do a lot of this, I think, today, <laughs> when we say that is awful and an abomination, what we actually mean is, I don't particularly like this thing, but I understand that certain people do, and you can't be wrong about your own taste. I just want to be very specific about it, because we're like right in the middle of yet another Twitter garbage fire Oh yeah, about the Japanese restaurant in L.A. I haven't you followed You heard anything about one. this? No. So there's some white dude in L.A. who runs a Japanese restaurant and posted this big, long complaint about how he has the most authentic Japanese food in L.A., and it's so disappointing that all the other Japanese restaurants don't honor the culture and heritage, which is clearly a horrible thing to say in a horrible horrible way. thing to say if you weren't a white guy running a restaurant, Mm -hmm. and it's even worse, right? Okay. Yeah, so let's just be clear about that, that I'm not bagging on another culture's food even though i am bagging on another culture's food we're doing this out of the love of food and yes food snobbery see my definition actually is kind of interesting i thought of this once upon a time actually when we were chatting one time as a group of friends i was talking about popcorn and a certain unnamed friend of ours said there is like one best way for popcorn to be prepared and was explaining this one best way for popcorn. And I'm like, but I don't want one popcorn. I want all the popcorn, right? You give me white and I want yellow popcorn. I want large kernels. I want small kernels. I want popcorn popped in oil, popped in coconut oil, popped, you know, with butter, without butter. Like, I like popcorn and I like different popcorns at different times for different things. And I thought, That feels more like a connoisseur of popcorn Mm -hmm. than a snob. I get snobby about about kettle corn. Kettle corn. Yes. I knew that was coming. Uh Uh-huh. Where I realized as I was thinking about this, I'm like, oh, I can't really blame him and point fingers because there's one that I just won't try because I don't like kettle corn. I like caramel corn. I just Mm -hmm. don't like kettle corn at all. And I get kind of snobby where I'm like, oh, that's not real popcorn. How would you dare you ruin that popcorn? And what's really going on is you just don't like the slavery yes. concept, yep. sweet and savory. But in our heads, we internalize that and go, oh, well, that's not real. Popcorn. That could have been good popcorn and they ruined it. Destroyed it. Yeah. And so I like this idea of a connoisseur being a person. Connoisseur is a loaded term that makes me sound like I'm talking awesome about myself. So maybe mm-hmm. that's not even the right term. But as an editor giving feedback on books, one of the hard things I think to learn is to be able to look at a book and say, how does this fit into the genre and style of storytelling and the type of pacing and things that the author would like to be part of, as opposed to saying, this is the right way to write a book and you should do it this way. But food is, I like to use food as metaphors sometimes instead of books and stories because we all like food and have strong opinions on food and it seems very relatable yeah what are your food snobbery things and what are your food connoisseur things well first i, w- I want to alter my uh my connoisseur definition a little okay. bit because the more i think about it i don't think that the connoisseur is you know finding subtle gradations of the top one percent of the genre i think it's more just appreciating and recognizing the differences yeah so for example bacon Mm-hmm. Let's back up just a little bit so that I can establish this properly. Brandon and I are both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it is very difficult for publishers to congratulate us for bestsellers. Yes. Because the tradition is they send, like, wine or champagne. Yep. 
and they can't really send that to us. The number of bottles of wine I've gotten and then had to find a friend who drinks and be like, hey, is this good? Do you want it? Is still a little <laughs> bit shocking. I mean, it's happened to me at conventions yeah. where people are like, here's a bottle of wine. I'm like, oh, that's really nice. I don't drink. They're like, oh, well, find someone who mm-hmm. does maybe. When I yeah. went to uh, Guadalajara for a book fair a few years ago, I ended up with seven bottles of tequila in my <laughs> hotel room. Because that's where tequila comes from. So everyone's like, here, welcome. We love it. was so hard. This is Tangent Room. Brandon and Dan's Tangent Room. Good good podcast title. When I was a teenager, I went to France for the first time and lived with a host family. Mm-hmm. And it was wine is a very big part of their culture in a way that it is not part of mine. And yeah. they were very flummoxed by the fact that I didn't drink. And, you know, they were respectful with it. But at the end of the trip, they broke out champagne and handed me a cup. And I'm like, but... Guys, I don't drink. They're like, oh, it's not wine. It's champagne, uh, right? Like, <laughs> doesn't even it count. It doesn't count. It's not wine. It's not drinking. It's mm-hmm. just champagne. Yeah. And it was baffling to them. Not offensive, I yeah. mean, but baffling to them. I have never been pressured more heavily to drink than in France. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was eventually forced to just promise my French publicist that if for whatever reason, I do decide to one day try alcohol. She has to be there to experience it with me. So the point is, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes they will send other things because, you know, once they learn, oh, I should not be sending Dan a bottle of wine because he's a New York Times bestseller or whatever. My agent signed me up for the Bacon of the Month Club. Nice. That was what I got instead of wine. Okay. When partials hit the New York Times list. You know, if I would have thought of that, I would have signed you up for the Bacon of the Month Club because bacon's (laughs) one of your things. I love bacon, Mm -hmm. which is where we're finally getting back around to this connoisseur idea. Getting a different kind of bacon every month that came from a different kind of pig Mm -hmm. or a different part of the pig or that had been flavored, smoked differently. Um, you know, some of them were really great. Some of them were just kind of great. I mean, bacon's never terrible. And I'm sure that someone who really, really knows their bacon might have been very disappointed with the ones that I was eating. But I love being able to talk about what you like and don't like about lots of different examples of the same thing. I think that's what I think a connoisseur is. Yeah. I'm there with you. You were there in writing group once when I got my, they don't know what to do with me. I I hit like number one on the times or something and they send us a box of cheese. Do you remember that? I remember the box of cheese. Big box of very stinky cheese. Uh, (laughs) There was one we had to put outside. One we had to put outside and we tried them all and then sent that one home with you because you (laughs) wanted the stinky cheese. Delicious. Yes. I am definitely a cheese person. Mm -hmm. Which is more difficult now that I'm lactose intolerant, but most hard cheeses, all the lactose is gone from them. So that was actually one of the best parts about my trip to France as a kid because. I had been raised on American singles. And Mm -hmm. talking about connoisseur, there are some things that an American cheese single is good in. You can make a really good cheese sandwich of the kind of classic American style grilled cheese on a burger, the right burger, American cheese that's just all melty and gooey is really good. But that was basically my experience with cheese. And then in France... There were cheeses all over the place, and I got to try a ton of different cheeses, and I realized, wow, there are so many cheeses here that to this day I just love that I would never, ever have 
come to enjoy if I hadn't been presented with a plate full of 50 cheeses. Yeah. Because, you know, my host family found out that I didn't have a lot of experience with cheese, so they got just a new group every night and let me try them, and they oh, kept a list awesome. of what I liked, and they would get more of the ones I liked, and then they'd have me try others. They were really great about that. And so that's an introduction to being a connoisseur. I wouldn't say that I am one, but it's, in my experience, how a connoisseur treats their love. I think you're an amateur connoisseur of cheese. Yes. Right? Sure. Can, can we have gradations of connoisseurship? Sure, we absolutely can. There we go. When I want to share my favorite types of popcorn with people, I like make a different style, like three or four different styles. I'm like, all right, here are the popcorns. And a lot of people are just like, all right, great. Crunch, 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 crunch. But for me, I want to be like, this you one's want different. Them to take their time with them. Right? You're, you're, you're a popcorn sommelier. I love half pops, right? You can't have half pops all the time, but half pops, people don't even know about half pops, right? I don't even know what a half pop is. Boil the popcorn for 20 minutes. Dry it out in an oven for like two or three just to get all of the, the water off the outside okay. and then pop it and it will half pop into something that's like half between a full pop and a non pop. Like a corn pop cereal like kind of thing? Like a corn pop cereal. It's hmm. not quite the crunchies you get at the bottom. It's, it's bigger than that, but it is crunchier and denser. If you like the kernels that are crunchy on the bottom, you might like half pops, right? But they're really huh. dense. Okay. And so you can't eat as many of them. But, you know, I like making half pops. And the last two times I've made them, my wife's assistant, who helps out in the kitchen and things, has thrown them away because she thought they were the... the <laughs> <laughs> a, a failed batch or the she leftovers thought, oh, like oh someone screwed up this popcorn yeah. let me and get so rid of it i have to leave a note saying this is intentional please don't throw away my like, half i ruined this on purpose but please let me eat it a white right like a popcorn that's just a white popcorn popped in a light oil with no butter is a very different popcorn than a big like uh they call them mushroom yellows the big mm -hmm. fluffy yellow popcorn that you then add butter to and and that's different from you know a th movie theater popcorn where you pop the salt and the butter flavoring in with the oil so that it gets on the popcorn and you get some of the yeah, uh, yeah. i uh, got my wife like a 50 pound bag of mushroom popcorn for mm -hmm. christmas and i don't really like popcorn but she mm -hmm. does so that's what she got Best popcorn you can order, by the way, Colby Ridge, Nebraska. You can get a white popcorn that's really good. If you want to try the no butter, just a white salted popcorn, order theirs. Hmm. You can get a bash bag, they call it. <laughs> I may or may not have done this multiple times, and it's like three and a half feet tall and full of popcorn. That's amazing. Speaking of salt, mm. this is another thing for which Brandon is a connoisseur by the definition we've created. Do you still have the salt cupboard? In I do have a salt cupboard, yeah. Yeah, with dozens, dozens of, of different, different salts. kinds of salts, different colors, different places, different mineral compositions. The thing about salt is it's mostly texture. The texture of the salt that you're putting on, and there's only really four classic textures of salt, but then you can flavor them. And so you could have four different types of a thin salt if you wanted to. You know, I go a little far with the salt, but the thing about salt is table salt is good for a lot of different meals. You know, you can't go wrong with table salt. Just, you know, a nice flaky kosher salt is so good with a steak. <laughs> anyway, yes, the awesome. popcorn and salt would be the things that I'm a connoisseur of. I'm not a connoisseur of water, even though I drink exclusive water. I don't really like a lot of other things. Like mm -hmm. once in a while as a treat, I'll get, you know, something like I really like boba tea without the tea, but, you know, yeah. with the boba and things like that. But I just like a classic ice water. And if it's not the way I want it, then it's not good enough. 
Yeah. And we talked about that. Well, and you do week. have the pebble ice machine. I do have a pebbled ice to get machine. The right yep. ice. But that's all about just getting the water cold enough. And that's the way I want it. So I'm a snob when it comes to ice water. Oh. Well, there you go. And I don't drink ice water. Yes, you drink lukewarm water because you're I lukewarm. Do. Lukewarm and ice cold. They fighting fight crime. crime. What are you a snob about? What am uh, I a snob about? Yeah. Well, like I said, I have very specific ideas of what Mexican food should be. And what that basically boils down to is where I lived in Chihuahua, what I ate there is what I want. So, for example, a chile relleno, which is one of my favorite foods in the world, most of Mexico would put a red sauce on it. In Chihuahua, no one ever did. And so I don't like it that way. And I get very snobby about it. When a restaurant will be like, our chili relleno comes with this wonderful red chili sauce on top. And I think, no, it shouldn't. Why would you ruin it that way? Mole. I never had had mole until you took me to some restaurants that serve mole. Mm-hmm. And you seem very, actually seem more connoisseur about moles because you were willing to try all the different moles and talk about oh, them. Oh, yeah. Like there's a really great restaurant downtown Salt Lake City called the Blue Iguana where you can get the mole sampler and they'll just put like a dollop of their seven or eight different kinds. Mm-hmm. Mole has like 40 ingredients in it. Right. Well, and it just kind of means mashed up something. It yeah. doesn't even have to be yeah. cocoa, um, right? And well, and a lot of them don't have chocolate yeah. in them at all. I had never done this. I had had mole once, just the classic chocolate. Mm-hmm. You took me to the blue iguana. You got me the sampler plate. I tried it and found that their almond mole is just one of the most divine things ever. And I crave it. And I go to the restaurant and I put it on everything. I'm like, (laughs) if I order the steak, right? Because they often have steaks. I'd like put mole on the side so I can dip my steak in your mole. (laughs) That's so great. And this is the beauty of going with somebody who's not a snob, but a connoisseur on something because they will want you to find the one that you will love. They just Mm -hmm. want to share their, their love of something with you. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's another really useful way to think of the difference between a snob and a connoisseur. Although both of us have lovingly embraced our snobbery mm-hmm. in different areas. You know, a snob is going to want to restrict the kinds of things that you try, whereas a connoisseur is going to try to find the one that you like, which we run into all the time, you know, when I do school visits for books. Every reluctant reader out there, every kid who says they don't like to read, they absolutely do. They just haven't found what they love yet. I always use the metaphors of shoes with that, that... Shoes are good for everyone. Everyone's going to enjoy shoes. But if you have shoes that are the wrong size, it's better to go barefoot. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I believe that entirely. Now, my son, Dallin, who is severely dyslexic to the point that he's in fifth grade and still has trouble reading. Yeah. It's really fascinating because he has to sound out the same word, even if it's just a couple words away from the other usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, his brain works, cannot retain like that visual memory of what a word looks like. But he discovered audiobooks just recently we've been trying to get him discovering but not pushing him too hard and he was insisting on listening to his audiobook every night and was just loving it so yeah and that's very clever to let him think that it's his idea yeah yeah you got to be careful with kids (laughs) i learned this by trying to get them to read books that i loved be like you should read this one it's great you should read this one i don't want to dad and then you know they just never did yeah and then they read their own thing. Yeah, I do find, though, that if I want them to read something, I will go down and heavily push one book, and then they'll read something else. Hmm. Because then that's the excuse. Well, sorry, I couldn't read 
the Prydain Chronicles dead because uh, I'm reading Hero and the Crown instead or whatever right. it is. Mm-hmm. I win either way and we've tricked them. Ha ha! Yes, reverse psychology. It stops working as they get older, but <laughs> you have to try other tricks as they get older. That's actually, we talked about this. I figured out why dad jokes are dad jokes when I became a dad. Actually, I think we talked about this. Yeah, well, I think maybe we did. I don't did. know if it was in one of the ones that we aired or not. I actually love the term dad joke. Normally when a new term like this happens, it gets applied to something you're like, that's not what we called them when I was a kid. But I I think that term is just so wonderfully descriptive. Do you know what they call them in Korea? I do because of mm -hmm. Mamamoo. Oh. Isn't it Aze gag? It is cold jokes. So cold long jokes. is what they told me okay. when I was there, which meant they're frigid jokes, jokes that are so bad that they leave the room colder when you say them. And when I was there, the group of teens that I was talking to told me about this. I'm sure it's not widespread. It was probably just their thing. Mm -hmm. They would make hand gestures to imitate penguins okay. whenever someone made a bad joke. <laughs> and my favorite one, you, you'll have to imagine this. You take your hand, you fold your thumb across your palm, and then you move the other four fingers down as, to touch the palm. And they'd say, the thumb is a bad penguin who told a bad joke, and the other four penguins are pecking him to death. <laughs> and they would do that. To most of my jokes. So, okay. so I'm going to leave you with homework. I'm a huge fan of K-pop, and I listen to it all the time. And okay. my, my favorite K-pop group is called Mama Moo. Okay. And a couple of years ago, they put out a song, complete with music video, mm -hmm. that was just puns. The whole thing was puns, and it's okay. called Aze Gag. Okay. Which, according to the... YouTube video I found that translated it for me. That's that's dad joke. I'm sure that the slang has changed yeah. from when I was there. I mean, it's been forever, so. And you speak Korean. I do speak and Korean. And I would poorly. love for you to watch that and see right. if it works. All right. We'll you. talk about that next episode. I will have watched that song and we can Sweet. chat about it. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Okay, but before we end this episode, I think there's an important food snobbery thing to bring up, which is that you ruin your steaks. Oh no. This is the granddaddy <laughs> of all food snobbery this things. This is, and I say that knowing that it is a horrible attitude. And I've actually tried to work on myself and try to be a nicer and more understanding and loving person because I do think that it's kind of a jerk move when you're all at a restaurant and someone orders a well-done steak yeah. to talk about how it's ruined it or how you don't, you don't really like steak. Like that's a really jerky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just because we like our steak done in different ways doesn't mean that you're a bad person. You're saying all of this, making the arguments I was going to make. <laughs> now, I do like a medium steak, but I've never been able to really get into rare steaks. It's partially a texture thing and partially a temperature thing. I like food that is warm, not food mm -hmm. that is lukewarm. Yeah. And so... People get really up in arms. This is like the poster child of food snobbery and people who wouldn't be snobbish about anything else, steaks. It's like it's been internalized to them that you must act in a certain way mm -hmm. when someone orders a well-done steak. And it's this whole offense thing. Like, don't get to me how it offends the chef to cook a well-done steak. My books get composted, right? <laughs> I'm sure, right? Well, and I suspect that one of, if not the main reason that steak is such a incendiary mm. food topic is because of how much it costs. Yeah. Like if you go to Ruth's Chris and you're dropping $80 on a ribeye and then you order it well done. Why? It just it, blows my mind. Why? It tastes better to that person. I know. And it does. And I understand that. And <sighs> the other thing is your ability to tell the difference 
Like I say this as someone who f- goes to the expensive restaurants for steak because mm-hmm. I like the ambiance. I like the atmosphere. I yeah. do like how they prepare the steak. But studies consistently show <laughs> that people are unable to tell the difference between the $20 cut and the $50 cut of steak. Oh, definitely. In any way it's prepared. And Absolutely. so people will be like, you get the expensive steak and you ruin it. It tastes like the terrible steak, the cheap steak. Well, guess what? Someone put in front of you the cheap steak and the expensive steak prepared by the same chef. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And so that argument's just out. Yeah, it's absolutely gone. This is getting into the territory of some of my hardcore food snobbery things. Like, like why do is it okay? Like, again, I like medium steaks, but why do we think that that ruins a steak when it doesn't ruin a brisket? Brisket's always served well done. Yeah. You smoke a brisket. You smoke it forever. It's delicious. It's wonderful. But it's well done. Mm -hmm. Why does it ruin a steak to make it well done when it doesn't ruin any other cut? (laughs) Any other cut of meat. I know that right now there's a chef listening to this screaming internally or probably just screaming out loud because he or she knows exactly why it ruins the steak. But, you know, I do think it all just comes down to opinion. You know, you like steaks done in a different way than I do. And one of the ones for me related to this is onions and mushrooms and just the general concept of picking things off of food. Mm. Like I was raised to eat everything I was given. Whoa. To the point that it had become, and I didn't realize this until five or six years ago, I actually was making moral judgments of people when I would see them picking things off of pizza. Interesting. Or, or other things like that. I thought, how can you be such a pathetic child who can't eat your onions? And that's a horrible attitude to have. And yet, and yet, <laughs> didn't we last episode talk about watching TV edited movies? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so I have had to like consciously tell myself they just like things that are different that doesn't make them bad. Right. I try not to do the thing on kettle corn anymore, unless it's friends of mine and I can make a joke about it, right? Because (laughs) obviously people really enjoy this. Why am I mad that something makes people happy? Particularly if it's a thing that I like in other forms, why are we trying to make the world a less happy place and a more ashamed place off of something as simple as food? Yeah. And so like, I'm still a dad. I am still going to tell my kids they have to eat the mushrooms, but, you know, Mm. I'm not going to think less of you if you pick them off of your food because you're an adult. You're allowed to make your own decisions now. (laughs) All right. Worst thing about not drinking because of my religious faith is that I don't get to saber bottles. Just got to put that out there. That would be like the most Brandon thing ever sabering a bottle having a sword chopping off the top but of your didn't bottle. you didn't you do that at your wedding reception with like some sparkling cider or something um, am i misremembering no i like it doesn't yeah. work right mm-hmm. it doesn't work right sabering a bottle of champagne is just one of those nerdy cool things that's not actually cool but that my brain says is cool <laughs> like that i just would want to be doing at every party oh, we should maybe do that so for those of you who don't know, those those few of you who, for some reason, were not invited to Brandon's wedding reception, <laughs> he had a bunch of swords made for your wedding. I did. And you had one 
and uh, your one. wife had one, and your brother, as best man, he got a fancy one. He got like a spy hunter or something. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there were what, like six or seven, it's eight more, of us, eight or nine. Uh, one that, grooms-woman that got a long and sword. Others were groomsmen. You know, what I do now. If I dedicate a book to someone, I send them a sword. Oh, and they've started going out. So yeah, Nate Hatfield, who you know, and Greg Crear got their swords oh, recently. Good. And so, if you ever get a book dedicated to you. You'll Comes get a sword. Comes with a sword. Comes with a sword. That's awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intentionally Blank. You can join the discussion and vote for your favorite podcast title at r Sanderson. Produced by Adam Horn. Sound engineering and editing by Daniel Thompson.